It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 116, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Dan Gentner of Common Harvest Farm, along with his wife, Margaret Pennings, has been a CSA farmer since before CSA was even really a thing, 1990 to be exact. With 12 acres of vegetables and a 200-member CSA in Osceola, Wisconsin, that's just outside of Minnesota's Twin Cities, Dan and Margaret take a thoughtful approach to how they engage with their CSA membership, the farming community, and their farm's land and production systems. Dan reflects on the CSA movement and how it has grown and changed since its inception, and the challenges that even CSA farms with a deep focus on community have faced, as local and organic produce has become more widely available. We discuss some of the ways that Dan and Margaret have built their CSA on community organizing and shared values in an effort to break out of the marketing paradigm, and how they are working to get even deeper into this heart of the CSA movement now. Dan also digs into how he has built the production system at Common Harvest Farm, including a foray into draft animal production and the investment strategy that has supported the development of a highly efficient farm in terms of both labor and energy use. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com Dan Gentner, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me to be part of it. It's really fun to have you on board. We were talking before the show, you're not a podcast listener. No, I'm not. And this is, uh, like I say, I'm, I'm looking forward to being uh, converted into a podcast listener <laughs> as a result of this interview. So uh, thanks for uh, welcoming me into the fold. So, Dan, I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Common Harvest Farm, where you guys are located, how many acres you're farming, and, and how you're getting your produce to people. Uh, yeah, Chris. Well, uh, we live about 60 miles northeast of uh, the heart of the Twin Cities. We, um, Osceola is the closest community to our farm, and that's our, uh, cl- you know, where we do our business. And uh, we do have um, uh, a number of other farms in our area. Uh, we're right along the St. Croix uh, River, which forms the boundary between Wisconsin and Minnesota. And uh, we're marketing our produce almost exclusively through a CSA. Uh, we do supply one restaurant and, and a couple other outlets as well. But by and large, uh, the majority of what we do is uh, centered around uh, a CSA. And this is our 28th season coming up. Uh, our farm was founded in the fall of 1989 and uh, with 1990 being our first growing season. Uh, we have about 12 acres of vegetables, uh, about 200 and about 200 members, um, and um, we own 40 acres, um, and we have um, uh, some pasture land, uh, some wetlands, a small wooded woodlot, and then um, kind of some sandier loam soil, sort of in the alluvial 
plain here along the uh, St. Croix River Valley. So, Dan, you guys got started. You said your first farming year was 1990. Yeah. CSA wasn't really a thing in 1990. Not really, no. No, it was, you know, we didn't even really know what to call it. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so curious about how we got into this is that, um, you know, this concept of the hundredth monkey, you know, how there's this idea just sort of swirling around and then all of a sudden it sort of takes shape. And, um, you know, that's really what was happening in the Northeast. Um, and, and a lot of this was really growing out of the farm crisis of the 80s. Um, I should just mention that both Margaret and myself grew up in predominantly rural areas. Um, both, Margaret's father was a veterinarian, a small town vet, and um, they were, you know, uh, you know, his work and their life was sort of central, you know, was sort of defined by this, this small rural community and the fabric of that rural community. Um, Likewise, my father was an agronomist, and he managed a number of research stations in Montana and Idaho and eastern Washington. So I grew up around agriculture. All four of our parents uh, grew up on farms and ranches. So uh, this agricultural influence runs deep through us. And I went to a land-grant college and fed cattle in high school and college at an experiment station and worked in a vet lab and a number of other things. So I was no stranger to farming, but it it just didn't seem possible to embark on a farming uh, career given everything that I had witnessed in the the 70s and 80s. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, the ranch that, where my mother grew up um, was milking about 75 cows in 1978, and they doubled or even tripled the size of the herd uh, up to about 175, 200 head. In addition, they had about a 500 uh, head beef operation, cow-calf operation. And after my grandmother died in 1978, my two uncles that took over that ranch uh, went on a spending spree, and they put up blue harvester silos and expanded the barn and brought in some irrigators and all of a sudden, the farm had several million dollars worth of debt, and they barely survived the 1980s. It was nip and tuck. They had to get off farm uh, jobs in order to make the bills pay. And, and I remember um, my mom, you know, saying a number of times to my brother and I, who both were very interested in farming, you know, just really discouraging us. And so when I did an internship with Martin and Atina Diffley in 1989. It was really the first time that I was able to witness and practice a scale of farming and, and uh, growing something with a high enough value to be done on a small acreage that it seemed possible all of a sudden. And 1989 was the Alar scare. Um, where a number of uh, people were hospitalized, and I believe even two, three, four people killed out in the West Coast. Um, the Exxon Valdez was in the spring of 1989, and so there was a lot happening uh, environmentally around that time. And so when I moved to the Twin Cities in 1988, 
we began to gather friends together and talk about this dream of having a farm and finding people to support that uh, enterprise. And we held a number of house meetings. And when I think back to that experience, it really was an eye-opening and kind of life-changing experience. So we held maybe three or four of these gatherings. And we invited people, uh, urban people, you know, primarily in the Seward neighborhood in Minneapolis, uh, home of the Seward Co-op and Birchwood Cafe and kind of the heart of a lot of progressive movements in the Twin Cities, to reflect on their connection to land and to food and to uh, community. And, and the stories that came out of that were just really remarkable. Uh, most people had some direct connection to land, and they wanted their children to know that connection, and many of those threads were fraying and growing thin, and uh, family farms were being sold, and uh, people were saying, we want a new relationship and a new connection to a place, and and that's where a lot of you know, we kind of stumbled our way into this into this movement in a way by sort of being in the right place at the right time and connecting with a group of people that had this deep desire to sort of take ownership of their food and become more involved in how it was grown, where it was grown, and 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 those things. So, how did that transform into a farm? For you guys, well, we you know we essentially asked folks to agree to do a number of things. We we asked them would they be willing to support us in getting started, and 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 how we uh, described that support. You know, you think about all of the resources that beginning farmers have today. In the late 80s, there were very few farms offering internships in and around the Twin Cities. I believe at the time that I was looking to do an internship, there were maybe four, three, four opportunities. And beyond that, once you had completed an internship, there were very few resources available in terms of, uh, you know, making that next step to capitalizing a farm, finding farmland, uh, you know, establishing markets, um, and uh, really, really getting yourself established. So in, in a sense, we were, we, were, we were really inviting these people to be partners with us and to help us through what we knew was going to be, most likely be, a somewhat bumpy couple years until we got established. Now, we started by renting land. That seemed like a logical choice for us. We wanted to be as close to the cities as possible, uh, primarily uh, around a long-term concern around transportation costs and larger sustainability goals that we had. And uh, and yet, uh, at the time, uh, urban sprawl was really accelerating in and around the Twin Cities. Land prices were, were you know, really beyond our reach. And so um, 
after renting land for a couple years, we realized that some of the long-term decision-making around organic practices, in particular around uh, soil fertility and weed management, that those, those are two very difficult things to do on rented land. When you do not have the long-term certainty that you're going to be there, you know, beyond, you know, into the very far into the future. And, and so we, we then asked our members, we said, you know, we, we really want to find a home. Uh, we had moved around a little bit. We had lost one site we were farming to development. And, and at the time, um, Rick and Verna with Philadelphia Community Farm, they started their CSA at the same year that we did, had some extra land and they had a, a house for us to rent, and we ended up, we were west of the Twin Cities out near Lake Minnetonka, and we ended up sort of uh, moving across the metro into western Wisconsin, and, uh, and uh, we had more than 60 farm members contribute to the purchase of our farm, including a single mother uh, who you know, wrote us a check for $50 and said, this is all I can afford, but I want you to know that I'm part of it. And uh, that, that weight uh, of, of anticipation and expectation and, and this uh, sense of investment on the part of the people was, was really empowering, but it was also just a little frightening too. I mean, this, when you describe this, I remember going into the bank, for example, with $60,000 of other people's money and the banker just sitting there quietly going, now who are these people and why in the world would they give you money? You know, and, and that then opened up the whole conversation to what this relationship was all about, that these were people that by and large were feeling disenfranchised from their food and from the industrialized food system and from any opportunity to have access to, to land for themselves, for their children. Um, and, and, and people started writing checks and saying, you know, we're ready when it's time for a down payment. We're ready. We're, we're on board. And so we leveraged that money, you know, using that money to leverage a borrowing. We did end up having to take out a mortgage and then with that money, we were able to build a house. We found a farm without a house on it. Uh, it was an old, it's an old farmstead um, that nobody had lived on since uh, the early 60s. And uh, we brought this, this old dairy farm uh, farmstead sort of back to life. We took down a number of buildings. We repaired other buildings. We painted, repaired windows, built this house, and, and uh all of a sudden, we're, you know, kind of on our way. And in the fall of, of 1997, we had a farm blessing where we invited our members to come out and we walked around the land and we read some poems and uh, shared some of our hopes for uh, this work together. And a number of those people are, people are still members, you know, quite a few. And, and I think I, I think people are really wanting to be invited and asked. I think I think people want more, people are, were 
I think it was true then, and I think it's true now, that people really do want to be invited to be part of something. And, and I think maybe in many ways we're not asking enough of our members. So they're on your farm in, in 1997. Now, by, by 97, CSA is, I mean, it's not exactly taking off, but it's a, it's a much more common concept by that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we helped organize a, a couple regional CSA conferences. One in, well, we had a, a smaller one um, in the fall of 92, and some farmers came from Winnipeg, Canada, folks from Nebraska, folks from Wisconsin. Um, by 1994, we had a region-wide CSA conference that drew, you know, 250 people to River Falls, Wisconsin. And then the following year, down in Madison, um, Margaret Chrome and uh, Michael Fields uh, sponsored another CSA conference, and and so it was it was taking off. Um, you know, I should also mention that in 1993, January of 1993, Margaret and I spent a day in Madison with um, MRF, the Madison Eaters Revolutionary Front, which was the <laughs> precursor to MACSAC. And uh, likewise, the precursor to Fair Share. And so we were part of some of those early conversations with, uh, you know, some of the farms in the Madison area as well. So it was, uh, we also during that time spoke in to Practical Farmers of Iowa to a group of farmers. Um, we were invited to, um, you know, speak at different events and, and meet, with, meet with other farmers. And and by and large, we could tell that uh, we were gaining numbers and uh, the movement was really beginning to coalesce and, and you know, become more of an, have more of a stronger identity about what made this unique. What, what we were doing was uh, more than a passing fad or trend that we really, that we really did see ourselves as setting out to reform the food system, to create a new model for farmers and non-farmers to create these lasting partnerships to support a farm, and that that would be mutually beneficial to everyone involved. You know, by the late 90s, I think some of the efforts to track the numbers of CSAs nationally uh, became very difficult because farms were popping up all over the place. and you know, at that point, the the movement was launched. You know, and uh, and I, I think that I think the I think the risk that we've had from the beginning in the CSA movement is to measure our success uh, purely based on numbers. So oftentimes, folks would say, "Well, there are now five thousand CSAs. Wow, this movement must be successful," and and yet. You know, from the beginning, we knew that uh, for many of those years, we were losing as many farms as we were gaining, and that there was still there were there was still some uh, obstacle. There were some obstacles. There was still a hurdle uh, to be uh, crossed, a bridge there um, to create sort of a, a lasting, uh, you know, sustainable model that was really going to support farms long-term livable wage, you know, fair price, you know, getting, getting a fair return on our labor, 
and, and those sorts of issues. So. Well, and, and one of the criticisms that I have of the CSA movement, and, and this is really born out of my own experience on my own farm, um, is that to a large degree, when you talk about those, those long-term sustaining relationships between farmers and eaters, that I think a lot of times that's something that's fallen by the wayside now in our, you pay me money and I bring you a box of vegetables model yeah. of, of CSA. I, I think you're absolutely right. And you know this well, cause you had a successful CSA farm for many years and you, you knew, you, you saw firsthand those relationships changing uh, over time. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting to, when I think back to the evolution of our own farm and, and then the evolution of the movement, uh, you know, when we started farming, we really weren't interested in selling something <laughs> necessarily. We, we didn't go into this uh, first and foremost as a business model. I mean, I think, you know, Margaret and I have had, you know, you know we're, we're not the best people to talk about business because we're not necessarily motivated by money and, and we don't measure our success uh, certainly by some of the same standards of many other businesses. But for us, this was about values and this was about relationships and it was about community. And, you know, it was interesting early on, many of the folks that were attracted to the CSA movement, at least in the Twin Cities area, came out of community organizing backgrounds. So they saw this to a large degree as a way of connecting with people around a number of social justice-related issues. And uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we started seeing within about the first 10 or 12 years of the movement is that 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 real concerted effort around membership building and around connecting. You know, we, we've always said that this is not about filling up this year. This, this is never, we've, whenever we've spoken to groups, we've always tried to be very clear about that, that if you're trying to fill up your CSA for this year, you're really thinking in the wrong terms. That what we're trying to do is to build lasting, relationships with a community of members who are interested and willing to support the term, the, the farm long term. Um, and, and I know that that's, that's, you know, we can talk more about that because that, that, that's becoming more, more difficult. But it was interesting uh, that we started seeing farms um, begin to try and attract uh, new members or, or reach new communities by, in a sense, starting to offer sort of more market-oriented options for people, more choice, more convenience, um, you know, something, you know, like home delivery started showing up, um, you know, a, a number of other things uh, that, that at the time seemed sort of antithetical to this deep community and these partner, this, this partnership model that w- we were really trying to build the CSA movement around, and yet there was really very little we could do about it. Um, I find it interesting today, Chris, about how many CSA farmers use the word customer when they talk about their community rather than members. And that may seem like an insignificant thing. You know, people are like, well, what's the difference? 
it represents two entirely different orientations. One is, is more of a market orientation, and one really comes out of a, out of a, a different approach to, uh, you know, built on this community organizing and social justice and values, values orientation. And, and I think the difficult thing, and, and I think the CSA Charter kind of gets at some of this, is that if we're caught in this marketing paradigm, someone will always be able to do a better job. We will not be able to, to uh, you know, out glitz the, the latest entry into this local foods frenzy here, you know, whether it's Blue Apron or home, you know, some type of home delivery service or we're just not going to, we're not going to have the capital, the, the, the hours to devote to that type of a campaign. And it's such a shifting, changing thing. That's kind of the nature of, of business. And, and really what we were setting out to do is to create a lasting alternative uh, to that. And, and I think, uh, you know, that's really still at the heart of the question here about the, the value of the CSA movement and the contributions that it's made to the larger organic, uh, organic movement. There certainly have been some growing pains, and I think now we're, we're falling into a, the, the risk of being co-opted by so many of these other, well, for one, organically food is so much more widely available, and so this doesn't necessarily stand out as an obvious choice for a conscious eater to be connected to food that is sort of infused with, with you know, some of these other, other values. And, and I think many farmers were attracted to the CSA model because of the upfront capital. And when you think about it, it's, it's really one of the only uh, types of, of, of farming in the local foods movement that involves this infusion of upfront capital. We, we don't have restaurants buying. I know, I, know there are some, I know there are some examples of it. I've read and, and, and heard about, you know, uh, restaurants making a upfront, you know, contribution to a farm in the spring to help with those early expenses. But, you know, by and large, I mean, the model that we've had in, in you know, agriculture for much of the, uh, really much of the history of, of sort of the industrial food system is, you know, this, you, you borrow in the spring to put the crop in the ground and you uh, pay off those uh, debts in the, in the fall after the crop is harvested and you, you know, you accept what's left, you know. And, and this was an entirely different approach to being able to, you know, when you, when you think about the, when you think about many of the things that make the CSA model unique, one of which is this whole idea of a budget where you can you can have some certainty of of knowing uh, within a relatively small percentage what your annual income will be, and I know that varies widely whether you're wholesaling or you know there's certainly other variables in that. But within within the standard CSA model, that was one of the things that was uh, clear from the very beginning that this is different. 
this has the potential to really provide farmers with a degree of security and certainty that they have not had. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was really, I think, you know, just one of the remarkable things about CSA. I mean, I shouldn't be talking in past tense because I, I still think it, it has the potential to continue to offer that level of security. So what are you guys doing at Common Harvest Farm in the face of some of these changes to not just the CSA model, but to the local food scene? How are you guys moving ahead in that? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, this interview is kind of timely because we're right, you know, we're sort of right in the middle of that. So for the 25, first 25 plus years of our farm, we really did not experience any difficulties with membership. Um, we set our goals. Our farm was fairly stable. We kind of stayed in about a 220, 225 member range for many, many years, 15, 18, 20 years, um, with very few changes. And we had some of our drop sites had as many as 30 shares at, at, a given drop site, whether that was a business or someone's front porch or backyard in a, in a neighborhood. And in uh, this, this past year was the first year that our farm did not fill up. And we were about 30 members short. And, but we, we saw some of these signs early on. A number of other farms had reported not filling up. And, um, and then of course, last year, uh, one of the curious things was that uh, many farms in different parts of the country did not fill up. Uh, you know, in, in talking with Elizabeth Henderson, uh, who has her kind of finger on the pulse of the of the movement pretty well, you know, she was saying that that reports were coming in uh, really from across the country, and uh, you know, I think that's a lot of us were kind of scratching our heads, wondering if that was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, you know, if, if there was something, uh, you know, off the radar that we weren't really seeing. Um, and so over the course of the winter, we decided to, uh, in a sense, kind of go back to our roots and to really re-engage with our members in a new way. And, and I should just mention that we don't have a formal core group. Uh, like, uh, you know, some farms do, but we've always had a circle of friends around us that have acted in that role informally. And we have called upon them when we have made bigger purchases or when we've needed to float ideas or something. Uh, but by and large, we haven't routinely engaged with our members, um, you know, as much as we'd like. And I think, you know, you, you get into this routine and you're kind of moving ahead and all of a sudden we realize, wait a second, we need help here and we need to let our members know what's going on. Um, of course, one of the difficult things about not filling up with your membership as a CSA is that almost all of the, of the short, short uh, revenue ends up coming out of the farm, out of the farmer's pocket. Because right. you've already spent, you know, so many of those expenses are so heavily spring-loaded that uh, waited, you know, early in the season that um, when you really do realize, wait a second, you know, we're short here, you know, we've already committed to our labor, we've already 
made most of our major expenses. And so, you know, that's the difficult thing is it really doesn't take a very big downturn to take a pretty significant hit on a farmer's uh, net income, uh, you know, for a season. So what we did this past winter is um, we, we had a number of uh, meetings with our members and we really started uh, throwing out some ideas, you know, how, is this still working? Is this model still working? And of course, one of the things about having been farming as long as we have, uh, you know, especially with, with this, these long-term committed members is you think about how our lives have changed and, and then begin to think about our members here, many of whom no longer have kids at home, uh, might be retired and traveling or spending more time at the lake or with grandkids somewhere else. And so their patterns have changed, their household uh, diet, dietary needs have changed. Um, and yet they're still very committed by and large to, to us as farmers and to the farm. And, um, you know, we've, we've been exploring a, a number of of options and our membership is real strong this spring, I think as a result of that. Uh, but a lot of it for us is re-engaging with our members and, and essentially reminding them that they're a vital part of this partnership and that uh, all of the members are important to us and that we really need this community of support in order to make this farm work. And so I would say that we, the temptation is to offer a variety of share sizes or start doing prepared foods or, you know, extend the season in different ways. And I think that's the pattern that we've been seeing among farms. And, and I think in our case, what we decided to do was, was to, in a sense, sort of go back to the beginning and say, what, what is unique? What are the strengths of the CSA movement? And really, in, when you begin to have those conversations in uh, groups of CSA farmers, you realize the one thing that we can consistently do better than almost any other type of uh, orientation to organic food is, is based upon relationships. That we can connect, we can be connected, we can be vulnerable, we can, we can offer this authentic this really authentic connection and experience. And that's what Blue Apron can't do. And that's what, uh, you know, other box schemes and home delivery and, and uh, you know, all of these other outlets. And, 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 you know, it still does come down to relationships. And, and, and I, think, I think the CSA movement stands to benefit uh, a bit here from our national political, uh, you know, situation where, you know, I think people are really asking about what they value in their lives right now and what is important and what they need to do to keep some of those uh, efforts uh, afloat um, and alive and vibrant. And, and I think the CSA movement, you know, stands to benefit uh, from some of that as well. When you talk about keeping those relationships strong and authentic with your membership, Dan, what are you doing over the course of a year to do that? Because 
a farmer's life is busy. It's a, I mean, it's a busy life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So we, I would say one of our strengths, you know, when we think about farming and in particular CSA farming, that there are hats that we wear that we don't necessarily uh, realize how important they are. And so in terms of the segregation of labor here on our farm, um, Margaret has, she has, she has been uh, the, the primary connection with our members. I know many of them or, you know, close to all of them and, and interact with them when they come to the farm. But I'm kind of focused on the production side of things, managing the crew, making the planting decisions, uh, you know, coordinating harvest days, uh, you know, doing all of that. And Margaret does the deliveries. And she does all of this work with the members. And, and you know, she's a, she, she comes out to the field when, she, when she's able. But, you know, for the most part, she's really trying to find every opportunity to connect with people. And, you know, we've, we've resisted things like PayPal, which is, maybe seems like a strange thing. And, and you know us well enough to know that we're a little behind on the technology curve anyway. But... The thing that's interesting for us about member assembler and all of these things is it then ends up being this filter or this layer of separation between you and your members. And so maybe it's something as simple as a handwritten note or, um, uh, and, and, I, and I will say that one of the strengths of our farm is directly related to Margaret's uh, deep connection with our members you know, sending a notice when somebody's parent dies or uh, sending a graduation card or um, reading about some, uh, you know, art show where a farm member is exhibiting and say, you know, we can't make it to the show. I hope it's successful. You know, these little notes, they're, they're so important. And, and yet, if you had to list throughout the course of the day if you had to prioritize the most important things that you should be doing in that day, rarely does something like that show up on my priority list. I'm thinking about weeding the crop or, you know, irrigating or all of these other, uh, you know, tasks related to the production. And yet, uh, you know, when Margaret, you know, says, you know, we really need to go to this funeral on Friday and, and, you know, you got a couple days to sort of plan ahead and work around it, but this is really, really important to us. And and then you find out later that these farm members might have been considering, you know, no longer being part of the farm. And and uh, you know, not that we do these things for, you know, thinking about our farm membership or long-term financial success of the farm, but it really does come down to relationships. And I think that is something that we take seriously, you know, hospitality, really welcoming people to the farm and learning how to do that in such a way, you know, I think people really do, uh, you know, sometimes it's just the most simple um, efforts of hospitality that can go such a long way. You know, somebody stops at the farm and you stop and you come over and you go, I'm really glad you came out today. I've got this list of things to do, but I hope you're able to 
enjoy yourself and here's some things to look at. And we'll meet up at lunch or something. And, and it didn't take that much out of my day, but that personal connection went a long way to making them feel like a really valued part of this farm and its future. It's the funny thing about relationships, isn't it? I mean, I mean, if you were to engage in the relationship, if you, if you're like, well, gee, if I go to the funeral, those people are going to stay members in my farm and that's going to be good. You know, it's yeah. like, if you do that, it, it almost always shows, right. It comes and it, and it feels icky. And, and it, I think it, everybody's aware of what's going on, even if you're not explicit about it, but when it, when it really does come from the heart, it's like you get from, you get the same benefits, but it, yeah. it's so, it's so much matters about your motivation and, and the why behind what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this hospitality, you know, is is such an important part of all of all of this, uh, you know, of this movement of the CSA movement. You know, trying to provide people with a place that they can identify with and with people that they can, you know, have this deeper connection with. It's personalizing their experience of eating. And, you know, when you think about all of the anonymity in the industrial food system, I mean, it's basically built on obfuscation and disconnection. You know, you want, you're going to eat fast food. You want it to be the exact same predictable experience you had, you know, wherever else. And, and, and I think that's our strength. Our strength is to, back to this, this whole notion of authenticity, it's to create and to offer this meaningful experience that really transcends this whole marketing, uh, marketing orientation, this marketing notion. Um, you know, we all know when we're being marketed to and we're being valued primarily for our role as consumers. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I kind of think about the word consumer, which, you know, to consume as a verb is sort of an active thing. But when I think of the role as a consumer in a capitalistic society, it's largely a passive thing. I mean, we're essentially told to go and buy, which, you know, as I say, is, is, is sort of an act, an active thing. But it, it doesn't really involve very much forethought or very much intentionality. And, and that's what I think we're trying to bring to the food system is this degree of intentionality that everything is connected and everything has a deeper purpose and deeper meaning. I, I, I think uh, capitalism basically turns us all into beggars. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all constantly saying, pick me, pick me. And at a certain point, uh, we have to trust you know, we're, it's going to take all of us to try and create alternative ways of, uh, you know, alternative uh, economies. If we're going to make any progress at all around issues of climate change, uh, you know, some of these larger social issues. Um, I look right now at some of these larger issues around refugees and immigrants and welcoming people, and I think all of those things. Are, are sort of built on the same thing, and that is sort of rejecting our, this, this notion that we have been sort of pigeonholed into being spectators uh, 
who only participate on very stringent rules written by a few people. <laughs> and I think what we're doing is we're ripping up that playbook and we're saying, wait a second, we've got a lot more control here in this system than we realize. And, and I think that's what owning a farm really means for me is it's this very, very empowering thing where we're saying, you know, all of the economic pressures aside, we have one of the most valuable things imaginable right now in the world. And it's real and it's alive and it can sustain itself if it's farmed and managed well. And we have a community of people who really uh, need to be part of this. We can't just, uh, you know, I, I've often thought, okay, let's say that I were a wholesale farmer and I went out and I harvested and I, you know, put things in boxes and I delivered them to a, um, to a loading dock somewhere, and then and then I sometimes think, well, that for me would be one of the least gratifying things, even if it's organic and I had a beautiful farm or whatever. And I and I think, you know, who would I think about while I'm harvesting? Who would I be, you know, this 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 very intentional uh, this this very intentional way of saying, you know, we are deeply deeply connected to each other, and and I think that's one of the things that is being strained in so many ways in our culture right now. And I, and I look at the role of technology, you know, and some people believe that technology is going to be this great unifier and bring us together. Look at this podcast. All of a sudden, there's this community of people around this podcast. That's a good thing. But, you know, in many ways, I think technology, you know, the unintended consequence of it is that it tends to separate us from each other and not give us as much of that uh, authentic, you know, deep, meaningful connection to each other. Thank you, Dan. With that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more from Dan Gentner from Common Harvest Farm in Osceola, Wisconsin. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management from start to finish. No more lost order slips and invoices. Know which of your buyers have already paid and which have not. Keep records and download your financial data. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone, text, or email. Save time and reduce errors by keeping all orders in one place, automatically generating harvest and pick lists, product catalogs, and packing slips. Farmers Web helps inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and order minimums, while also helping you keep track of buyer payment terms, special pricing, and customer information for all your buyers. A flat monthly fee and flexible plan types allow you to pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. FarmersWeb.com Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. What if you didn't have to worry about weak transplants and poor germination due to less than great potting soil? or getting truly finished compost for your homemade blend, or making sure that your employees remember to add the extra fertilizer charge? What if you could grow plants up until the roots filled the container without having to worry about supplying extra fertility? What if every transplant on your farm was growing in an optimized matrix of materials designed from the ground up to produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume? What if your potting soil had your back consistently year after year after year? 
That's what Vermont compost potting soil can bring to you. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. And we're back with Dan Gentner at Common Harvest Farm in Osceola, Wisconsin. Dan, you mentioned a few minutes before the break the CSA Charter. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I think the CSA Charter is is just really a, a wonderful expression of some of the creativity uh, that is just, uh, you know, an essential part of the history and the future of the CSA movement. And, uh, I, you know, I give credit to Elizabeth Henderson, who was really the the, the first one to introduce this idea. And as I mentioned earlier, for those that do not know Elizabeth, uh, she has been uh, CSA farming for the better part of 30 years, one of the earliest CSAs in the country. And um, after Robin Van Enn uh, died uh, unexpectedly in the early 90s, you know, Elizabeth kind of took on um, her work and finished the manuscript for Sharing the Harvest, um, the CSA, uh, one of the first founding, you know, books supporting and laying out the CSA concept. And, and Elizabeth has continued to serve in sort of this really important role of being sort of an ambassador for the CSA uh, movement, not only in this country, but also in other parts of the world, including um, doing uh, some work uh, most recently in China. Uh, with the growing CSA movement there, and she's also been very connected with a lot of uh, fair labor issues um, and and other things. So Elizabeth uh, sort of uh, hatched this idea that we really need to come back to some of these core principles. So what makes the the, the CSA movement unique, and what are some of these uh, identifying characteristics and qualities of the movement, and uh, there have been efforts to uh, create uh, certification, uh, a number of other ways of sort of defining sort of who's in and who's out, and and um, you know those can be delicate issues. Um, you know, for example, here about five or six years ago, we started seeing CSAs in the Twin Cities that were not organic, and and then that created you know, some questions about, to some degree, uh, there's, it's sort of implied that a CSA, uh, if not, you know, certified organic is certainly following organic practices. And so then that became a little bit of a challenge for us to uh, start to talk about distinguishing, how do we distinguish ourselves, um, you know, from some of these CSA-like uh, models. Um, you know, I, I was just a little bit of a historical note. Back in in 1990, I was on a, a radio uh, show with Rod Schuldice, who was the uh, executive director of the Biodynamic Association, and I believe he was at the Kimberton um, uh, CS or at the Camp Hill, the Kimberton Camp Hill in Pennsylvania. And um, he said something that that uh, you know it was really stuck with me, and that is. I think some of the brilliance of of the CSA idea is that uh, there were these core these core principles, you know, shared risk, uh, 
member involvement, uh, you know, giving members a say in what's grown and, and this communication and connection with our members, sustainable practices, fair labor, you know, these have been sort of these, these really, uh, you know, these core values. And, and, and what Rod said in that interview that, that, that has stuck with me is that the brilliance of the CSA model is that there's a tremendous amount of creativity and individual expression of the CSA movement as long as those core values are sort of honored. And, and so we have CSAs that do uh, different types of distribution systems and some are, have a lot more opportunities for members to be involved and others maybe not as much and uh, different ways for people to engage. But by and large, you know, there's been sort of this connection uh, to, through these core values. And, and I think the charter, where the charter really started to take shape is to start to realize that, that some expressions of CSA were wandering from some of those core values. Uh, get what you want when you want it. Um, uh, these session shares, you're going on vacation for a month, you don't have to pay uh, for that month. You know, all of these kind of consumer-driven uh, personal preference, uh, consumer choice options. And, um, and so I think what the, the, the beauty of the charter, and, and so Elizabeth, in a sense, she kind of convened this group. She invited about uh, 30 or 40 people, uh, some representing CSA organizations um, at, around the country, to sort of be part of this process of crafting these principles, of which there are 12. And uh, this process went back and forth over the course of three or four months. And then after the first of the year here, um, uh, it was ready to be rolled out. And that happened on uh, February 24th. Uh, the CSA Charter is available. Uh, if, you, if your listeners haven't uh, seen a copy, it's available through a number of different sources. Um, Simon Huntley at uh, Small Farm Central has been sort of, uh, you know, providing some... Uh, you know, platform media support for a lot of this, and, and you can access that through the Small Farm Central website. Um, and there's an introduction, there's a press release, and then there are these 12, these 12 uh, core principles. And I don't think we necessarily need to go into them here, but, but I think they're worth reading and understanding and, and uh, uh, reacting to. And that this is not uh, the final... <laughs> Uh, edit. I think this is going to be an evolving conversation. Uh, and then I think the hope is that individual farms uh, can uh, cons you know, consider signing or endorsing the charter. So you would have on your website, your printed material, uh, brochures, um, you know, a CSA charter member or CSA charter endorsee, and that that then becomes an invitation to engage around these issues with your members and with the wider community about what these core principles are. And, you know, many of them are around 
livable wage and uh, social inclusion, um, you know, the manner in which food shall be grown and, you know, honoring uh, the natural process of, you know, uh, you know uh, organic practices and, and a number of things. And, and I, I think it's, I think it, it, it'll, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, what the response is like in different parts of the country, if people feel like this is a useful thing. Um, I think it's been a very uh, organic process. And I think it's a good start. Um, I mean, a lot of water has gone over the dam. Uh, you know, the horses are already out of the barn kind of thing. And can we go back and recreate what we had? I'm not sure. But at the same time, I think we can begin to, to really speak more directly about what those core values are with respect to our own individual farms as a way of, of really reconnecting with our members. And um, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a, I think it's been a very fruitful and very uh, open process. And I really give Elizabeth a lot of credit for shepherding uh, that whole process. Great. And we'll get a link to that on the website. I would also note that that's available at csaday.info is is a place is one is where you can the URL you can go to get that. So so Dan, I would be doing a real injustice if we didn't talk about farming. I mean we haven't we haven't been talking about farming. <laughs> We're going to talk about more specifically about practices and and some of those things. I I yeah, I would welcome that. Yeah, about what you do out in the field cuz you're a really good and really interesting farmer. Well, coming from you, Chris, that's really a compliment. I, I appreciate that. I have tried to do things. Um, so I, I don't know where you want to start this uh, segment, but I'll say that I've been a real student of scale and that I have tried to um, maintain uh, a, a scale that fits my abilities and my management uh, skills. And uh, we have not been in a real growth orientation for a long time. We've, we've sort of hit our sweet spot, you know, maybe 15, 18 years ago, and we have tried to sort of maintain that. Uh, our equipment and our uh, cropping system has a maturity about it, I would say. Um, one of the things that's been sort of a guiding principle for me from the very beginning is that uh, we were setting out to create a system uh, and that individual equipment purchases needed to be evaluated in terms of how they fit within the larger system. How did they, uh, uh, what was the relationship between uh, new things and with the rest of the system? Um, you know, I would, I've kind of described investing and capitalizing a farm as sort of a stair, a stair step. Um, instead of a traditional, you know, kind of uh, 45 degree, uh, you know, line where money in, money returned, I sort of see it as, uh, in my own experience, you oftentimes make an investment in equipment, uh, infrastructure, and you don't always uh, start seeing the gains from that until all of those different pieces start to gel together. And then 
you so you make an investment which ends up being sort of the tread of the stair and then the profit is the riser and i say the goal for all of us small farms is to be right at the top of that riser uh, as much as possible to have everything on our farm uh, fitting in its place i should also mention that i'm not very mechanical i don't you know tear into motors and rebuild motors and i don't have a lot of extra equipment sitting around um i'm not a you know I, I like to weld and I like to fix things, but m more importantly, I'm a real student about anything we bring on this farm has to fit. It has to have a place and it has to be, um, can I repair it? Uh, can I find somebody to repair it? How expensive are parts? Do I want it? Do I need it? You know, ways of evaluating things. Um, we're also very debt averse. We have a mortgage um, on the farm, but we have never borrowed any money uh, for any other purchases. Um, we have we have uh, done some creative financing through our members, where on three different occasions, members provided an infusion of capital for us to um, move forward with some purchases, and we did that in. Uh, the form of, of selling shares, so kind of selling some advanced shares, like a five-year share, a 10-year share. Uh, we built a barn, we built a harvest shed, we drilled a well, um, we bought a tractor with that method. And you have to be careful because in a sense you're borrowing from yourself. But And it, that also, back to our earlier conversation about CSA members, it really endears people to you if they're now invested for 10 years Right. Um, and, and feeling a sense of ownership around those, uh, you know, that, that investment in infrastructure and, and capital and stuff. So, um, we've also been real students of sustainability. Um, Margaret and I met at a place in Washington state that was very, very committed to reducing waste reducing energy, conserving, recycling, um, trying to do without. And uh, that uh, Holden Village is the name of it. It's a Lutheran-affiliated retreat center um, in the Cascade Mountains. And um, we were practicing, uh, you know, just some really forward-thinking sustainability initiatives, even in the 70s and 80s. Um, around reducing waste and, uh, you know, a number of other things. And so we sort of brought that to our farm. I, I know at the organic conference, you know, there was these workshops on this lean, these lean business practices. And, you know, you, Chris, you've done an excellent job over the years with talking about post-harvest handling and, and packing shed efficiencies. And some of those efficiencies for us have had to do with conserving energy and um, that has been a very, very important value of ours. Uh, we use less electricity on our farm than the average household does in the state of Wisconsin. Um, now we also we have solar panels now, and 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 that's been a nice addition. But um, you know, we we for example, we don't use a pickup or tractor very often when we're harvesting things. 
Um, our packing shed is centrally located in our farm, and we use hand-powered carts. And uh, we just are organized, and we get people in motion and the system in place, and we don't have to have a pickup or a van or something to shuttle produce around. We do use uh, a tractor for some of the larger harvests around winter squash and, you know, some of the things in the fall. But that's just a simple that's just, a, you know, a kind of a simple orientation to our farm. Um, we don't uh, leave walk-in coolers running. We don't have fans circulating. We don't. So in a sense, we're, we're, we're kind of uh, outliers, I think, in a lot of ways because we, you know, um, we have a, a, a real value. We just this, you know, this, this historical orientation to sustainability for us has been, um, you know, really trying to be as that our stewardship uh, transcends into all of these other aspects of the farm as well. Um, stewarding all of those other resources. Yeah. Well, and you've, you've even gone so far as to go back from tractors to draft horses. That is true. We did have draft horses for about 12 years. Uh, we just sold them here about two years ago. And uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with Eric and Ann Nordell, uh, who farm in Trout Run, Pennsylvania. And I, I consider them to be to some of the most important thinkers in uh, small-scale agriculture in this country in terms of their soil stewardship and stuff. And they farm with horses, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been sort of drawn to that. I think one of the things that was, was an important thing for us about uh, horses is that it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always reminded of a Joel Salatin quote uh, that, that I probably don't have exactly, but he said, you know, as long, you know, one of the biggest problems with agriculture today is that we're trying to apply technological solutions to biological problems. And until we figure out how to apply biological solutions to biological problems, we're not going to get very far. And, and draft horses, for me, represented sort of, uh, you know, operating within that biological realm. Uh, all, of a, all of a sudden, understanding, you know, you're so connected to an animal and that animal is tired or that animal is edgy about something, what's going on. And, and it was this deeper level of awareness. Now, having said all of that, uh, Kate Stout, whom, you know, um, who farmed with draft horses for years, she used to call, uh, those, some of those really wonderful times, kind of these silver cloud moments, you know, where everything just goes well and you just think, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. You know, I remember one time a bluebird landing on the back of the horse, and I'm the horses are standing there resting at the end of the row, and a bluebird lands on their back. And I'm thinking, you know, I've never had a bluebird land on the tractor. And, yeah. and it was one of those moments like this is just a glimpse of what it must be like for us to really begin to accept more of this innate, biological connection that, that we have. Now, having said all of that, it also is a layer of, uh, it adds a layer of complication. One thing is farming with horses is, is, is a challenge, just learning it. 
teaching someone else how to farm with horses is an entirely different thing. And that became one of the more difficult things. So we have three or four interns. We have kids, our own kids working on the farm, um, you know, some retired folks, members coming out to volunteer. It, it, we have kind of a dynamic and, uh, you know, a dynamic labor force. And, and all of a sudden you add horses into that mix and you have somebody driving a team that doesn't know what they're doing or, or uh, something. And so that, in the end, became one of the more difficult pieces of farming with horses is that if it were just uh, myself and I, I, I absolutely loved harvesting firewood in the woods in the winter with horses. I mean, it just nothing uh, was as, you know, satisfying uh, and this deep connection to the to nature and, and uh, another living being, you know, it was just this really incredible experience. But, you know, for example, you'd be farming with horses and, and you just get the horses in a groove. Now, horses are going to spend about the first 10 minutes testing you and and they're going to see okay how serious are you and then once they find out that you're serious and they're going to be out there for a while then they realize we better start conserving energy because we're going to be out here a while so let's start behaving and and then when somebody comes up and says oh there's a water leak a water valve has broken and there's water running in the harvest shed and you've got to take the horses back to the hitching post go and fix that leak and come back 45 minutes later, you start that whole process over again with the horses. They're edgy, they're agitated, they're testing you. And, and that became one of the more difficult challenges for me is that I had to get up earlier and earlier in order to really enjoy some of those moments with the horses because it, it just, it, everything took longer. And, and in the end, I thought, you know, if this maybe this romantic notion of being deeply connected to nature is jeopardizing our livelihood here, then I really have to think twice about that. And uh, that ended up being sort of the reason that I gave up horses and stuff. But we've got an electric G and we've got, uh, I just got a fat tire bike that's on loan here for the summer to, that we're going to set up as kind of a harvest cart. And, um, We've always been into experimenting with things. Like I said, we've got the solar panels and, and other things. So I, I just really, for me, it's this creative, uh, this creative side of farming is, is part of that uh, experimenting and trying new things. And I, I, for, for personally, I just think that's one of the most enjoyable parts about organic farming in general is that it's not prescriptive. <laughs> That, you know, we're not following this predetermined set of rules or something, that it really is about observation and experimentation, and that takes a lot of different forms. So, Dan, you're not doing the horses anymore, but I I know from what some of the research I did getting ready for the, the podcast today, you know, one of the challenges that you found with the horses was that a bed system becomes pretty difficult with horses. and And so did you guys move to a row system or are you still doing beds? Have you switched, have you switched back and forth as you've changed power sources on the farm? Yeah. You know, I would say that's one of the horses lasting influences in our production system is that, you know, following after some of the research that the Nordells were doing on their farm uh, of which they call the bio extensive market garden. Um, 
you know, we started looking at some of the limitations of the bed system, not only in terms of the horses. One of the, one, just one of the practical things about horses on a bed system is when you start to separate the horses that far apart and the neck yoke, you can lengthen out the, lengthen out the neck yoke. That's not the problem. But you end up getting this seesawing action. So when you're cultivating or something, it's very difficult. Say you've got three rows or four rows on a bed, and these horses are not stepping at the, at the same rate. Um, it, it can be disastrous in, in terms of trying to do any kind of precision cultivating. And so, you know, but, but in addition to that, we started looking at, you know, some of the high fertility needs and the irrigation uh, needs and, and other things. And we started uh, realizing that a row system by spreading things out a little bit. Now, I realize that you have to have the land available to do that. Um, and, and we're kind of up really pushing up against the, the limits of that on the land that we have available. But um, we end up doing uh, kind of a micro bed system where we're planting one row on these slightly elevated, it's almost like zone tillage or ridge tillage, kind of a modified ridge tillage. And we're using a um, key line plow uh, that we use to shape these beds. And, and something else that's kind of unique about our uh, orientation to production is that we have, we do light surface tillage first, so secondary tillage first uh, to texturize the surface of the soil, you know, eradicate any weeds, uh, you know, dice up some residue or something. And then we plant behind our primary tillage. So that's sort of a different uh, orientation than, than most farms. And so we have these Australian chisel shanks um, that, that are about 16 inches in the ground. And then we have, um, we can apply fertilizer behind them. And there are these disc killers that slightly elevate that bed. And there's very little disturbance then in between those, those two shanks that we have. And then there are these baskets that roll along and kind of texturize the surface. And then that's how our transplanter is set up to go right into those kind of little micro beds. Uh, so uh, we find that it's easier to get in and out of the field. It's easier for picking uh, with uh, more of a row type uh, field uh, layout rather than uh, more intensive beds. That's a really interesting change because that, that seems to be the opposite of the way a lot of the production models that we've talked about on the podcast are going. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, back to that earlier comment about it, it really does hinge upon your land resource. And if you're, if you're limited on land, as many uh, market gardeners are, uh, given their proximity to the city or, um, you know, expensive land, um, you know, Land is at a premium. I mean, I look at these field tunnels and how much production is coming out of some of these field tunnels. Uh, we have two high tunnels ourselves, and uh, it's really quite impressive. I, I think the difficult thing is is sort of following the nutrient trail and realizing where are the nutrients coming from to get that yield. And I think what the Nordells are trying to do is to try and grow more of their fertility on their own farm. And, and we've tried to do some interseeding between some of these rows with kind of mixed success, but that's all uh, 
still part of the conversation here is how can we possibly look at some intercropping and other things to try and, um, you know, feed the soil and keep a, a very active biological community uh, in between those rows. So for a farm that's as as focused on sustainability as, as you are, and obviously with the acre picture that you've got, you're not looking at doing a Nordell style rotation of one year in one year out. What are you doing? Unfortunately, no. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing for fertility at Common Harvest Farm? Well, so, uh, you know, I would say that our, you know, our cover cropping, and that's one of the things about organic vegetables or, you know, the shorter season crops uh, just give us a lot more opportunities for, for cover um, so we can be seeding some things in the spring and getting, you know, 60 days of growth and incorporating that and then following that with a fall crop, uh, for example, fall brassicas or something. We do very little double cropping here. So we do have enough land where once we've harvested spring lettuce, for example, we can then come in on top of that with a cover crop. And, and many of those, of those covers have, you know, the opportunity for three, four uh, good months of growth, and, and a lot of that biomass can then be incorporated in stuff. Now, having said that, we're still a long way from producing all of our own fertility. And, and back to your comment about the Nordells, you know, one to one, to one you know, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I often think about is if you look at the average uh, Iowa uh, farm rotation in 1920, uh, corn made up no more than about one-fifth of the total land area, and that's because they just couldn't produce enough fertility for much more corn than that within the system. And so that was a fairly closed system. And, and I think that that ratio of like a one-to-four or one-to-five is really uh, about the best that we could hope to achieve if we were going to try and produce our own fertility. So that ends up being a little bit of a guide, uh, a guide for me. Now we do import some pelletized uh, feather meal or pelletized, uh, you know, chicken litter or something like that to provide some, uh, you know, a boost of fertility and stuff. So, you know, we're, the, our, we aspire, you know, we're, we're certainly aspiring to, to, produce more of our own fertility, but, you know, that uh, is one of the real challenges, I think, for us as market gardeners is that a couple things. One, a disproportionate number of things that we grow are heavy feeders, you know, the cabbage family, potatoes, um, you know, a a number of those uh, crops require a fair bit of fertility. Um, And you know, it's, it's, you know, you go back to Peter Henderson and his work in New Jersey back uh, 150 years ago, you know, the, these are intensive, you know, you, you can, you can get a tremendous amount of production, but you also then have to put, uh, you know, a lot into that system. Um, so, you know, high in, high out, but I think the ultimate goal for us all is to create a little bit more of a self-sustaining system and, you know, unfortunately, that just takes a lot more land than, than most of us have available to us. And if we are importing things, then uh, whether that's mulch or other things, that, 
then is in a sense kind of robbing nutrients from somewhere else. So this is all part of a larger aspirational um, objective here of trying to produce more of our own fertility, which is a challenge, you know, uh, given, you know, the high output of these, you know, high value market gardens. Dan, with that, it's time to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor and then we'll get started. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. Dan, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, favorite tool? Um, we have a number of hand tools that I just love. We use an English-style push hoe. Um, they're absolutely phenomenal. They're a lot better than a Dutch diamond hoe or a scuttle hoe or anything else I've ever discovered. And we have them made at a local shop and stuff. Uh, so that's one thing that I think has worked real well. Um, we've designed um, a tomato steak puller, which is just a real simple tool for, it just makes that whole process real simple, kind of a fulcrum principle, slide it over the steak and anchor, there's a foot and, you know, fulcrum that just lifts them so easily. And, and so those are just a couple examples. When I visited your farm, and I think that was in, in 2001, one of the things that struck me is when you drive on the farm, you've got a poem on the side of your barn. We do. Yeah. Would you share that with us? Yeah. The, the, the poem is uh, the red wheelbarrow from William Carlos Williams. And just to give you a little bit of a backstory on it, uh, Minnesota public radio did a story uh, back in the mid nineties about a um, state arts board grant um, in, in Wabasha County. And what they did is they chose, uh, four, uh, barns on one road and each of the barns, barns had a poem for a different season. And, um, and I heard this story and, and the story was, uh, was essentially about these poems that had been put on these barns in the seventies were kind of showing signs of wear and that, there really wasn't money to repaint them and stuff. And, and they were just kind of lamenting the fact that, uh, you know, this really creative thing was sort of uh, disappearing. And so I, I said that, you know, relayed this story with Margaret and Margaret's an English teacher. And she said, I know the poem that we need to put on our barn. And it's uh, William Carlos Williams, uh, the red wheelbarrow. And it is so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater, standing beside the white chickens. And it's very simple, and I think it kind of captures the essence of so much of what all of us do as farmers. What's your favorite crop to grow? 
I love growing carrots. We have good soil for carrots. Um, it's just a joy to dig them. We dig them with a U-bar digger. Um, and it's, uh, I love eating them and I love sharing them with members. What would Margaret say is your farmer superpower? <laughs> well, I would, I would say one of the things about uh, my particular farmer superpower is I don't give up very easily. I, I have a lot of gumption. And, and I'll tell you, uh, I come from a long line of farmers and a long line of, you know, German immigrants, many of whom were, you know, stubborn and wouldn't give in. But I, I have this crazy feeling where if I give up, I'm sort of letting down all of these ancestors who forged these pioneering lifestyles in Germany and Russia and traveling to this country and farming on the North Dakota prairies and then moving on to to Montana and starting ranches and stuff. So I, I kind of feel like I've got this sort of this blessing and this curse, and that is that I've got these expectations of all these people. But I like to get up early. I like to work late. I, I've got good energy for working, and I, I really enjoy kind of the challenge of it. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, I, you know, I think patience is probably the thing, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of look, uh, look at other farms and, and sort of size up your success based on all of these other sort of external and somewhat artificial uh, reference points. And, and I would say, you know, trust your instincts, be patient, um, you know, uh, don't lose uh, sight of those things that you really value, you know, family and relationships and, and other interests. Keep other interests in your life. Um, we've played baseball for years. We've, I try and get out for bike rides as much as I can, you know. Um, I love, uh, you know, as difficult as this may sound, you know, trying to find some balance in your life is, you know, continues to be sort of a, a challenge, uh, but that's something that I would make even a more concerted effort to do right from the very beginning. Dan, thank you so much for being my guest on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Well, Chris, this has been a, a real pleasure for me, and you and I, uh, I believe we met in 1996 at Seed Savers. That was the first time I remember meeting you, and I remember uh, being really engaged uh, to hear you lead uh, as you led a garden tour of Seed Savers. And I've always held you in, in high esteem, and I think you're doing valuable work. And I'm, I'm just really glad to be part of this. Thank you so much, Dan. Yeah. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 116 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Gentner, which, if you haven't seen that, is G-U-E-N-T-H-N-E-R. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. 
and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. We've got one-time and monthly options there. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.